Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids. You are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, February the 19th, 2019. Kind of been a bit of a slow week here in New York City. The big news? Amazon pulled out of the deal and will no longer make their second headquarters here. I have to say, I'm not upset because that means for a little while longer, it'll be staved off that hour. Yeah, kind of like that.
and we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard My City Was Gone by the incomparable Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders from their Learning to Crawl album, which came out in 1984. The words of that song just resonate with me so much now because many people can argue that the New York that they knew was gone. And yes, I can walk down almost any street and I could lament what was around in my youth that was gone, or I could just accept the fact that cities, like people, evolve over time, and until it's your place where you met that person that night that changed your life, it doesn't affect you, and that's fine. Yeah, we're all just here for a sprinkle of years anyway, and the world will go on without us when we're gone. (laughs) Cheerful thought, isn't it? (laughs) Well, on that note, I cannot wait to bring you our guest artist this week, and we're going to open now with a song that they handpicked to open their episode.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was The Old Apartment by the Bare Naked Ladies from their Born on a Pirate Ship album in 1996. Hmm, Born on a Pirate Ship. That might be interesting. <laughs> well, you might be wondering, what do My City Was Gone and The Old Apartment have in common? Well, wait no longer, kids, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody, welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! And our guest this week is someone whom I wanted to have on the show for a while, and she made the trek all the way out to where she made the trek to. <laughs> Please welcome to Fish Out of Agua storyteller, producer, Erin Barker. Hello, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and we're sitting here very cozy with our coffee and our chai tea. So, Erin, I asked this question of everyone when we begin our time together. And let's see if we can figure this out. How and where did we meet? This is a good question. I was thinking about this because I I listened to a little bit of the other episodes, so I know that you asked this question. And I can't, for the life of me, remember. I feel like it must have been at Perch, at Stories of Perch or something. Oh, my God, I remember Perch. Perch was a show... On Fifth Avenue in Park Slope, in the middle of Park Slope, and there was storytelling in the back. Yeah, uh, it was when I was first getting into storytelling. I think I saw you tell a story there. Oh, so this has to be in the aughts then. Oh, I just like yeah. to say the aughts in a sentence. <laughs> so I'm thinking 2007, 8, 9? Yeah, probably 9. If wow. I had to guess. So that's 10 years ago. Yeah, something like that. Wow. A lot of stories have come and gone since then, and storytelling actually went through a big change. Yeah. But a lot of changes. At that time, though, were, wasn't um, Ben Lilly doing an early version of Story Collider around that time? Uh, he first started doing Story Collider in 2010. Oh, okay. Ben and I actually met in a storytelling class at the UCB Theater. Really? Who was yeah. teaching it? Was Margo it? Lightman. Margo Lightman. It's <laughs> always, you know, whenever pe- I, people say that they met in the class, it's either two people. It's either Margo Lightman or David Crabb. Yeah, they're matchmakers. <laughs> yes, they are. Oh, and they're both out in L.A. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. So, There have been a lot of stories happening since then, but we'll get back to that in a little bit because right now I want to talk a little bit about you. Mm. So, um, where are you from? (laughs) And I know it's not New York. (laughs) No, it's definitely not. Um, My family is from West Virginia, and I grew up mostly in southern Ohio. Are those two places geographically close? Yeah. Is West Virginia considered... Is it considered Midwest? It's not really South. Nah, it's Appalachia. It's Appalachia. Oh, okay. So what's the difference between that region and the Midwest and the South? It's just very um, kind of isolated in a way that the South isn't. It uh, mostly like areas that did not secede from the Union. <laughs> it's a point of pride. Um, but it's just, it is very culturally 
different. There's a lot of poverty through Appalachia, which is really unfortunate. It's like Hatfields and McCoys. Ah! Oh. That's a signature Appalachia. Well, there's story. there's mountains in Puerto Rico, and we call the people that live there Hibaros. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's kind of similar. like a similar thing. <laughs> But I should probably say on the positive side, I don't want to dwell on the poverty. <laughs> well, poverty is <laughs> <rivalries>. everywhere. <laughs> but they have a really, um, there's really strong culture there of helping out your neighbor and being tolerant of people's differences and storytelling. You know, I can totally see that. People on porches yeah. telling stories into the night, right? Um, was it a lot of coal mining and um, like factories for jobs in those areas? Um, yeah, there's not as, it's not as dominant today as it used to be, but my grandparents' generation was very uh, involved with the coal mines. Ooh, yeah, that's a horrible job. A like lot the, of people the, had long-term lung problems. Yeah, and the claustrophobia and just like the courage that a person would have to have to go where you could die at any time yeah. for your job. It's equivalent with like a fireman or policeman. And people, I think, don't give those, the people that work subterranean the credit that, that they deserve because that takes courage. Yeah, totally. And how they've just historically and even today been treated by the companies. Yeah. A great movie is October Sky. There's a good science connection for you about, uh, it's about Homer Hickam, who grew up in that area with his parents working in the coal mines, and now he's a big shot at NASA. Wow. It's a great movie. Jake Gyllenhaal. Ooh. <laughs> Two reasons to watch it. <laughs> so um, ethnically, that that region is, I'm going to assume, mostly Irish, Scottish, English? It's a lot of immigrants who have been here for a long time, so, like for hundreds of years. So they consider <laughs> themselves... American. Yeah, yeah. They don't. They don't. They don't consider themselves to be hyphenated Americans. Right. Right. So your your family. Do you know where your family came from, originally? Uh, vaguely. There's some Irish on my mom's side. I'm a, her maiden name is Hogan. It's my middle name. My name is Aaron. I mean, I, I believe that storytelling is a big part of Celtic culture. Yeah. The Irish were traditionally known as storytellers. A lot of amazing authors. Yes. Oh, James Joyce is one yeah. of my favorites. One of my favorite stories ever is The Dead. Anyway, we digress here. So, do you have a lot of siblings? Uh, I have two. Two younger siblings. Um, my brother, who's 30. My little sister, my half-sister, who's... She's going to be 21 next month. Being the oldest has some inherent privileges because you're bigger than everybody and you can boss them around. But also, you're the one that gets experimented on. So, like, whatever they, <laughs> whatever your parents did wrong, they did wrong with you. Yeah. But then again, you also have a lot of photographs taken of you. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All of your milestones are the big, important yeah, The milestones. first poop, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> so was your family artistic-oriented at all? Were there any performers in your family or artists? No, it's, it's not really the mindset that my family had because um, my grandparents grew up, you know, with a lot of poverty. My grandfather grew up with his whole family living in a one-room cabin. And so the fact that they were able to send their kids, my parents, to college was like a really big deal. Um, and so practical areas of study are very big in my family. <laughs> um, my dad's an accountant, CFO, my mom's software engineer and marketer. Um, and so I'm very like the black sheep 
of the family, everyone else has studied math or science or engineering. And you just went, you, did you know always that you were an artist? I always knew that I was a writer. That's great. From a very young age. So at what age do you think that you could pinpoint that you were one of the weirdos? <laughs> <laughs> that I was a, a creative person? Yes. Um, probably as soon as I could read and write, to and be honest, because as soon as I could do those things, I wasn't very interested in anything else. So were you writing stories, poems, plays? Stories, yeah. I would make little books that I stapled together. Really? Yeah. Do you, does your mom still have any of them? I still have some of them. That's, I made little books. <laughs> I made little illustration books, and I still have some of those books, too. Um, oh, we have that in common. Yeah. Wow. So did your parents encourage this, or were they afraid of it? I think it was a little bit of both. <laughs> they would sometimes like they would get me books for Christmas that were not really to my taste. They would get me like Michael Crichton books. Michael Crichton is my most hated author. <laughs> they, would, they would be like, "It's a book. You like it, right?" And I'd be like, mm. "You know." So I appreciated that they were trying, uh, but there was just sort of a disconnect uh, because they didn't really understand it. Was reading encouraged in your family? Yeah, academic success of pretty much any kind was encouraged, and so Got it. books were like, they were like food, like one of those things where if you wanted it at the store, you could have it. Well, books are like food, because <laughs> they do nourish you, but I find that interesting that for a family that had been in the United States for generations, their outlook on life was very much like a first-generation immigrant family because I've interviewed a lot of people that are first generation and artistic endeavors are not really encouraged. Make money. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's interesting that there's a similarity there and I'm going to venture to guess that the defining factor for both of them is poverty yeah. and trying to, to, to raise yourself out of it. Yeah, a lot of people don't have the luxury of being able to think about being writers or storytellers or artists as a career. No, yeah. no. It wasn't any type of pursuit of the arts at one time, only the privilege of, and I have no other word for this, the upper classes, mm -hmm. the gentry, yeah. as if we have gentry here, but right? <laughs> yeah. No, totally. My grandfather, I don't think I ever realized this until near the end of his life when he started telling me stories, but he showed me all the photos that he took and and talked about how when he was on his Navy ship, he would run a dark room and develop people's photos for them. And it really made me realize, wow, if he had grown up in my position, he probably would have been a photographer. Wow. And he, so he was in World War II. Yeah. So he's part of that greatest generation. Yeah, for sure. And you got to hit to hear his stories. Yeah. You were so lucky. <laughs> so did you, were you acting out your stories at all? at home or did you just like keep them to yourself did you read them to people did you share them with friends I kept them to myself mostly it was kind of my escapism um until in high school when I was on our student magazine and then that was really the first time that I ever shared anything that I wrote with anyone so all through grammar school you basically were like a closet writer did you feel that if you shared that with any of your friends that you would be ostracized or bullied because of it? No, I don't think it was so much that as just 
you know, I didn't know if I was good. I didn't mm. know if, if anybody would be interested. It's hard to put yourself out there the first time. It, it, and it's very hard when you're a child also. You just want to be like all the other kids. Yeah. And if you know you're doing something that not all the other kids do, I would think I would be inclined to keep it private. So, I mean, your parents knew that you were doing this all the time. Oh, yeah. Did they, you do you think they ever thought anything would ever come of it? Or did they just be like, oh, that's Erin? I don't know. I think they started to, because eventually, at a certain point, it became clear that I wasn't going to do anything else. Mm. <laughs> it just wasn't going to happen. Um, so I think they were counting on it after a while. <laughs> so um, what do you think was the tipping point for you to start releasing some of that talent or being feeling safe that you could share it? With people. Um, my English teacher in high school was also the advisor on the magazine. It was like a news magazine. It was mm. like our student newspaper. Okay. But it was a magazine. And it was like, it's hard to really convey this because it's so strange, but it was like a very competitive student magazine. We won like national journalism competitions. Wow. Stuff like that. Yeah, we were like nationally ranked number one. So th- there were competitions throughout, what, the the area? Yeah, like locally and nationally. We would travel to like Dallas and things like that for the big conventions and competitions. So it was a big deal for me like to be asked to join it, you know, and to be a part of something that that seemed very impressive. And we got little press passes and we could leave class to do interviews. Wow. It was very fancy. And my debut was I wrote an editorial about, uh, basically about how I didn't believe in any religion. (laughs) Was, yeah, I came out swinging. Um, I think I wrote it mostly just, like, to upset my parents. (laughs) Did your essay have the desired effect? Yeah, it made a big splash. uh, And I was really excited about the fact that People were reading something that I wrote and, like, coming up to me and talking to me about it and inviting me to church and quoting Bible verses. Oh, my God. Are your parents religious? Pretty. My family's pretty religious, yeah. Oh, wow. Like, what kind of religious? Uh, Southern Baptist, evangelical. Like, Pentecostal, kind of? Well, it's Um, similar. Similar, okay. Yeah, it's like, the way I describe it is uh, we weren't the people who danced with snakes, but we were on the level of, like, we didn't think those people were that weird. Gotcha. <laughs> we would, like, say hi to them at the grocery store. <laughs> Be like, hey, Bob, what's up? How are the snakes? Yeah. Did they speak? Did they pray in tongues over you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, my God. So it was, like, the first time that I felt subversive, and I was like, that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Did you, did, so did you win an award for that story or anything? Uh, no, or- not for that one in particular, although I was a runner-up for Ohio Student Journalist of the Year. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Did you envision yourself at that time as a career as a journalist, maybe being a newscaster? Yeah, yeah, that was a viable career at that point. Uh, And I I went to college and majored in journalism because it it combined my two greatest loves, which are writing and storytelling and just being nosy and getting to know people's business. (laughs) (laughs) Two big passions of mine. So where did you go to college? Ohio University. And how far was that from where you grew up? Like, was it in the same area? Was it in a more urbanish part of uh, the state? It's about three hours. So I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, and then OU is in Athens, which is like a very rural, more Appalachian part of Ohio. 
Was there a culture shock for you going to college? No, I wouldn't say so. It was actually kind of like going home in a way because it was more like West Virginia. Mm. Cincinnati was. It was what I really wanted to do. And kind of halfway through with the, uh, the 2004 election. Yeah, so I flirted with the idea of working in politics for a while after that before. You did? Turning. You know, I can kind of see you in that. Yeah. Yeah, I interned in D.C. for a summer. But oh, for who? Yeah, it wasn't for me. I actually inter- I did a gay rights internship with PFLAG uh, because my brother is gay. And I saw everything that he went through when we were growing up. And just seeing all of the, not only Bush won in 2004, but also a lot of constitutional amendments against gay marriage were passed, too. So did anything happen to you in college to reinforce that you were on the correct path with your life? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I think just every time I try to move away from storytelling, I always end up coming back. I think it's just that thing that I've always loved. And your parents were supporting you at, at this point with this? Yeah. Okay, so... Um, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't made a good grade in a math or science class in about a decade. So, uh, <laughs> so, so they, they were like, definitely do the journalism. So thing. they probably had no choice, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what type of job did you envision yourself getting upon graduation? I wanted to write features. I wanted to write profiles about people. For a newspaper, for a magazine? Yeah, whatever. As I was graduating, it was just as uh, print journalism was kind of collapsing. It was great timing. So, So I was kind of like, whatever I can get doing this. Before I graduated, I did an internship with the Cincinnati Enquirer, their community section, where I just wrote like little stories about people in the community every week and I actually really loved that. You had a byline. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. And were you paid? Uh a little bit. Yeah. That's wow. <laughs> That's like a twenty year old's dream job. Yeah, and just being able to see the newsroom there it was so cool and just traveling around to interview people all day. I loved it. But I met my boyfriend, Justin, in college and we decided we were gonna move to New York after I graduated. So I wasn't able to take a job with the Enquirer. So at that point, I was just kind of looking. Wow, so you moved to New York right after graduation? Yeah, I hadn't even been here before. Wow, wow. (laughs) So, okay, I'm sure the answer is obvious in your mind, but what made you choose New York as opposed to Chicago, which may have seemed a safer choice, or even going out to L.A. or Washington, D.C.? Why New York? I'd been in D.C. Uh, before. Oh, right. You had an internship there. Yeah, and I kind of knew what that was all about. I didn't see myself in L.A., and I just thought, you know, if you're going to do this, if you're going to move to a big city, why not really go for it? <laughs> I know? like that. Adventurous <laughs> spirit. This is a two-part question. So <laughs> did you have an idea in your mind from, I guess, whatever media you had absorbed what New York was going to be like? And if so, was the reality a smack in the face or a warm embrace? (laughs) That's a great question. I think, yeah, my idea of what it was like, it was mostly based on, you know, movies and TV that I'd seen, like Devil Wears Prada and Sex in the City and stuff like that. Oh, Sex in the City! (laughs) (laughs) Did you go to Magnolia Bakery when you came here? of course. How did you like the cupcake? 
I loved them. And then you I think at it? some point I ate too many and I can't eat them anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> I remember when Sex in the City was the happening thing. I had a friend that worked at a, at a hair salon called Avalon down the block. And all of a sudden there was a line. Uh, and there was there had never been a line before, and it's like what the hell. And <laughs> anyway, Midwesterners ruining everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, and as a native New Yorker, we're very accepting and tolerant here. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to assume that it was the warm embrace and not the smack in the face. Oh, uh, I don't know. I think it was more a smack in the face. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, I wasn't totally deluded. I knew that like. It wasn't going to be exactly like in the movies. I knew things were going to well, yeah. be really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people that just come here with their boyfriend out of college don't get giant loss. Yeah, I knew that like, an unemployed actor doesn't yeah. really have no. an amazing no. apartment. Uh, like what, what was Justin pursuing at that time? Uh, he was really interested in comedy, and he was uh, head tech at a theater around here for a while. Um, he just really wanted to work in theater and comedy. Okay, behind the scenes in theater, not on the stage. Well, both. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so what was your reality in New York? <laughs> I think I just, I hadn't really anticipated um, how claustrophobic it is here. <laughs> Interesting. In what way? Everything's very closed in. Even when you walk through the aisles of a store or into a restaurant, everything is just closer together. And I think it's just part of it was where I was working when I first came here, which is I had an internship. Where were you at working? At a publishing house. Okay, we um, don't have to mention it. Yeah, probably for the best that we don't. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone who worked there was just so unhappy. They were so unhappy every day. And meanwhile, I was frantically trying to get a job there so I could stay in the city. So you wanted to be just as unhappy as they were. Yeah, that was my dream. And then one day, I think I had just gotten a job somewhere else, and then one day one of their editors called from her vacation in Hawaii and said, I'm never coming back. I hate all of you. Wow. I was staying in Hawaii. And they were like, do you want this job? And luckily I found something else by then. But that's a happy accident. I wonder yeah. if, if that person stayed in Hawaii. <laughs> I hope she did. So was your perceived career path still as a journalist then? I'm going to assume this is like, what, 2008, 9? Yeah, yeah, around that time. Um, I got a job as a copy editor like a junior copy editor at this other uh, journalistic institution. And um, it was like on the right track, but I was really unhappy because I was never, I was never able to be creative. It was a lot of like data entry type of stuff. And so I started listening to the mock podcast while I was working and I heard, you know, Ed Gavigan and Elna Baker and I just loved them. I still remember I looked at Elna Baker's MySpace page. I Googled her. MySpace! To... <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Because I just loved her so much. I thought she was so hilarious and I just wanted to, you know, read everything that she wrote, listen to everything that she said. And I was so shocked that she wasn't famous. Yeah! <laughs> Well, she's kind of like, she's kind of like in that nebulous, semi-famous kind of category. Yeah, well, she, yeah, she's kind of there now, but back, back at that time. Right. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, why isn't everybody listening to this lady? Oh my God. My, <laughs> I, I still can't get over my space. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how you discovered storytelling in your cubicle. Yeah. 
So Justin at that time was working as a tech at a comedy theater, and he said... UCB? Yeah, and he said, you know, they've got a storytelling class. Maybe you should sign up for it. It'd give you, like, a creative outlet. And so I did, and that's where I met Ben and uh, Margo and learned a lot. And we had the grad show at the end, which I knew about the whole time, but I just kept thinking. Because I had, like, a really deep fear of public speaking. Mm. Really love storytelling and writing, but so in other words, the whole idea of storytelling was great until you realized you actually had to get up on a stage and open your mouth. Yeah, exactly. And I was just really terrified of it the whole time. I was so scared that the night before the show, I actually broke out into hives all up my left arm. For reals? Yeah. Oh my god! On only one arm? Yeah, only one <laughs> arm. I had to wear long sleeves, and I think it was kind of it was like a warm weather time of year. Um, do you remember what that story was about at all? Yes. Uh, I told a story about my best friend growing up, Emily, and how we kind of grew apart when you reach that age where you start to have boyfriends and things like that. But then we came back together uh, one night during a rainstorm and became friends again. So is, that, is that story still in your repertoire? Um, I haven't told it in a while. Wow. I don't know. I think it's, yeah. You know, sometimes you feel more connected to different stories at mm -hmm. different times in your life. Yes. So after you tell your story, did it leave you wanting more? Yes. I was like, I got to do this again. So where did you take it next? I'm trying to remember what is the first show that I did after that. And I'm not sure that I can. Did you do Sherry Weaver's Speakeasy show at all? No, I don't think so. Because I, I think remember. she was, she, no, she, she may have been ending, no, she was still doing it in 2009. I think it might have been Mimsy. I tried out for Mimsy. I remember Mimsy. <laughs> wow, wow, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, right? Wow. So did you do the moth? Yeah, I went to a few moth slams, but I didn't put my name in the first were you were, were you nervous about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's timers, there's judges. That's a lot. And there's Steve Zimmer and Adam Wade and Peter Aguero who just, like, win everything. Yeah, all those heavy hitters with all that experience. Yeah, totally. It's totally intimidated. So when did you do your first moth? Um... Because yeah. you, you, you won the Grand Slam, didn't you? Didn't you win a Grand Slam? Yeah, I, I won a couple. Oh, okay. <laughs> Woohoo! All right, correct me. I guess somebody didn't do their research enough. Well. Well, I remember the first time it was, the first Grand Slam I was in, it was me and it was nine other men. Oh, my God. And they were all like, it was like Brad Lawrence, Steve Zimmer, Matthew Dix, um, Jeff Zimmerman, like all of these guys. All of these performing. men who are at least a foot taller than you <laughs> and 70 pounds heavier. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny and so much more experienced than me. Well, how, how long had you been telling stories before you were in your first Grand Slam? Not oh, for very long. Like less than a year? Yeah. Wow. Did you win on your first try? I did. I did too. I was we're in the club. I, I, yeah. I won in my first try too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The very Were you first shocked time. also? I was totally shocked. <laughs> I was like, Ugh. <laughs> what's a grand slam? Dan, uh, Dan Kennedy had us all back on stage. Yes, Dan Kennedy. Oh, my God, Dan yeah. Kennedy. And he was like, do you want to say anything to these guys? And I just like grabbed them my and went, suck it, boys. <laughs> Whoa! And they did. Yeah. I, blame, I blame all the excitement of the moment. <laughs> That's fantastic. Another memory now that I have of you, now that we're on that subject, is you and I also did a show 
from Eugene Ashton Gonzalez. It was a dinner oh, show. Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh god, and it was and in, Dave Hill was on it. Yeah, and and um, Blaze was there. Blaze was there, and Taylor Negron was on that show, and I will never ever forget how welcome he made me feel. Mm -hmm. And like, even though he had been in TV and movies, it was just like he was just another storyteller. And he that was, was such so a fantastic wonderful. show. And he it, drew me a, a picture of the whole event, of all of us sitting around the stage and gave it to me. Oh, my gosh. I still have it on my wall. Oh, that's so nice. Mm -hmm. Oh, shout out to Taylor Nagan on yeah. a beautiful soul that left this earth way too soon. Absolutely. So when did you decide that you wanted to branch out and become a producer? Um, well, a few months in to the Story Collider, after Ben had kind of had this idea of wanting to start a show for stories about science him being a physicist and everything. Um, a few months into that, he asked me if I wanted to work on it with him. And you said yes, even though you probably failed every science class that you ever took. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know that I don't know anything about science, right? And he was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so obviously he saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. Yeah, I think he, he thought it would be good to have the perspective from somebody who wasn't a physicist and who didn't have that background. That's a very scientific conclusion. Yeah. When did you join Story Collider? Uh, actually, my anniversary is coming up on February 28th. Wow. So I, I wonder what gift that is in like wedding <laughs> registry. Test tube, yeah. beaker, Bunsen burner. <laughs> so what was the appeal of the science for you? Uh, I've always been really interested in telling stories within a world that I don't necessarily understand. I was really into sports journalism when I was younger, for example. Uh, but I think as I got into it and as I started hearing more of these stories, I, I really kind of related to scientists and this idea that, um, you know, they work so hard and they're so committed to what they do and for so little reward. And it's because they're really passionate about what they're studying. Even if it's really obscure, minute, they really invest themselves in that and I really related to that yeah it's 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 a calling it's kind of like being an artist I mean art and science are very linked together don't yeah, you think absolutely There's yeah tons of creativity involved in both yeah I mean you it's like being one of the weirdos yeah. <laughs> so I guess this is a, maybe a good time to say that a little pescado says that you have a story to share for us so yeah this is a story I told in a grand slam actually okay Erin take it away so, uh, when I was in junior high, my mom left my family, which sounds like a terrible thing, and in many ways it was, but it was also great, because after that, it was just me, my brother, and my dad, and our retriever, Samuel, which meant that we ate pizza almost every day, <laughs> and after school, I would have this treasured hour alone in my house before my brother got off the elementary school bus. I would spend this hour almost exclusively playing air guitar to my Bare Naked Ladies CD. And then my brother would get home, and we'd walk the dog, and we'd watch Pokemon, and we'd eat Oreos, and my dad would come home, and we'd eat pizza. It was the perfect life. Every day was the perfect day. And then the night of my junior high school play, everything changed. So after our performance, one of the members of our illustrious cast, Bethany, came up to me with her mother and said the four words that would live in infamy. Is your dad single? 
And I think back to this moment a lot and I wonder how my life would be different if I just said no. But I didn't, and within the year my dad was married to this woman and she and her two stupid kids were living in my house. <laughs> Bethany was the same age as me, and she was the Jesus freak to end all Jesus freaks. I went to church every Sunday and I was in youth group, but even I was like, okay Bethany, easy on the Jesus. She sang in a Christian barbershop quartet with three other girls who wore matching uh, Praise Jesus sweatshirts and scrunchies, just to give you an idea of what I was dealing with. Her brother, Robbie, was a year older than us, and he made straight A's and was building a computer from scratch in his bedroom, and was just basically like a genius. So it became clear immediately after they moved in that I'd lost my perfect life. There was no more air guitar after school since Bethany and Robbie were there watching me with their judging eyes. The only show that was ever on our TV was Bethany's favorite show, which was Seventh Heaven, which is the worst show in the universe. <laughs> And my dad gave our dog Samuel away because Bethany was allergic. So what made all of this worse was that I felt like I'd lost my place in the family. In our family, my brother had always been the adorable baby and I'd been the good smart one. But now Bethany was the good one and Robbie was the smart one. And there was no way I could compete with either of them in their respective arenas. And once I overheard my dad on the phone with my grandparents and he was going on about Bethany's choir recital and how great she was and then about Robbie the mathlete and how smart he was. And then he said, oh, Erin? No, she's not really doing anything. The clincher came at Christmas. What I wanted for Christmas was a Fender Stratocaster. This very specific Strat that was hanging up in our local music store that was the same color blue as the one Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies played. My dad took me to the music store and he let me try it out and I knew, like I just knew by the way he was smiling that he was definitely going to buy it for me. And on Christmas morning it was there under the tree but unfortunately it was also attached to a card that said to Robbie. And it was then that I realized that though the smart role and the good role were both taken in my family, there was one vacancy available. The role of the complete and total asshole. And I assumed it immediately. I started drinking, swearing, and just kind of being a general dick. I egged my own house once, literally, with eggs from my own fridge. <laughs> and then oh, one day we got our report cards. Robbie had straight A's as usual, all the teachers loved Bethany, and... My grades had dropped over the quarter to the point where I was making a lot of C's and D's for the first time. And I was so frustrated by this that I decided that what would be a really great idea that would really make me feel better would be to light my report card on fire in a kitchen pot in a symbolic gesture of my rebellion. Obviously. <laughs> Apparently, I underestimated the amount of smoke that your standard report card produces because after a minute, my dad and, and his wife were knocking on the door, demanding to know what was going on. It got around school over the next few months that not only had I set a fire, but that I had been attempting to burn my house down and kill my whole family. I never really uh, corrected anyone on this score. I had to make a choice about whether it was less embarrassing to be a psychopath or to be emo, and psychopath was the clear choice. <laughs> So, over the course of the year, I went from being the good and smart one to being the asshole to being the psychopath. Which I will admit, 
bothered me for some time. But now that I'm an adult, I realize that actually none of these roles really mattered. Robbie hasn't become a rocket scientist, and Bethany isn't the second coming of Christ. Uh, she's just this lady. And it's hard for me to really be jealous in the same way that I was at that time. I might not be the good one or the smart one or even the asshole, but I am me, which is some combination of all three. Wow. You play guitar? <laughs> you I didn't did. mention that you play guitar? I Not very well or successfully. Wow. Do you still play? No, not really. Do you still have that Stratocaster? I do somewhere. Well, not that one, because that one was Robbie's. Um, right. But my friends did a really nice thing after this, which is they all pooled all their money together, and for my birthday, they bought me this really cool red tiger stripe guitar. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I still have, and I still love. Well, but you could pick it up, you know, as long as you have fingers, yeah. you could play guitar, right? That's wow, that's a fantastic story. But, yeah, sometimes it it's so true. You are the sum of like all the experiences and all the people that came before you. And it's not like there's any one defining thing. We're all just blended. Yeah. So from Story Collider's beginnings, it also blossomed kind of like in the same way the moth did, that it became a thing. It became an institution. Um, You're like a nonprofit company at this point now? Yeah, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, We've been really fortunate to receive some great uh, funding from Simons Foundation, Tiffany & Co. Foundation, have enabled us to do a lot of really cool projects. Um, we have three full-time employees now, which is very cool, and we have uh, a team of 40 people scattered all around the world. Wow. Shows. Yeah. All saying they did it for science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have a new home, a permanent, like, show home because Ben Lilly opened up a performance venue on the Lower East Side called Caveat. Yeah, that's right. You were there every month, every first Monday. Where do you see Story Collider going in the future? Oh, uh, our mission is to show science is a part of everyone's lives and to find these stories about science from as many different voices and people as we can and to share those stories as widely as we can. So I think we're going to we're going to keep pursuing that mission. We're going to keep trying to find those unheard stories, those underrepresented voices. We're going to keep trying to spread our shows to new and exciting places. So would you say that now you have your dream job, that you found your place and your calling in New York City? <laughs> yeah, I think you could say that. Uh, I think your dream job, it's never really what you think it's going to be, is it? You know, I pictured myself on this kind of straight uh, line path toward becoming a writer, becoming an author, and and now I'm doing this weird kind of job that my parents don't understand, <laughs> helping scientists and other kinds of people tell their stories about science. So. And New York is all much more richer that you are in it. Oh, thank Yay! you. Yay! <laughs> so do you still perform now at all anymore, or are you just now behind the scenes as a producer and a yeah. co-director? Co You're a co-director, right? Yeah, I'm an artistic director. I do perform. I didn't perform much last year because I was traveling so much for Story Collider. But now that we have another employee, I'll be making him do all of that. Uh, so and be... that would be Nissa. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so, Uh-oh, you know. get to work, Nissa. <laughs> <laughs> You're fired, Greenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> but yeah, I hope to be performing a lot more this year. Great. 
I look forward to it. And if somebody would like to pitch to Story Collider, financially support Story Collider, find out when shows are coming up or anything else about Story Collider and the many, many people who have been on the show, is there a place where people can see past shows, hear past shows, or get in contact, get in touch? Yeah, storycollider.org. You can do all that stuff. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast on all of the usual podcast places uh, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And if people want to follow you as well? Yeah, I'm Aaron H. Dot- or I'm Aaron H. Barker on Twitter. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, everybody has to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I don't, I don't know why that is. It's like your phone, trying to remember your own phone. Right, number. because you don't call yourself and you don't tweet at yourself. Yeah. Okay, so is Story Collider on Instagram also? Yes. Okay, and, and it's just story, it's story.collider or whatever just it is? Story Collider. Oh, just Google. You know what? GTS. Google that shit. <laughs> Let's Google Story Collider and all the fabulousness will come up. Well, Aaron. I have one final question for you that I always ask at the when we come to the end of our chat together. If you would have a word or two or three of advice for one of the weirdos, a fellow weirdo, <laughs> um, a young person or any person for that matter, who knows that they have either a creative bent or they follow a different path than either their upbringing or their circumstances would have them believe that they could achieve or try to do, what would you tell this person? I think I would say just to not be afraid to put yourself out there. I think the best way to learn how to tell a story, to learn how to be on stage, is to do it and experience it and get that feedback from the audience. Um, Don't be afraid of feedback and don't be afraid of growing. So feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And get it out of your head and into the world. That's right. That sounds like good advice. I think I may take some of it. Well, thanks for being on Fish Out of Agua, Erin. Yeah, thank you. Well, hug on the air. (laughs) We always end with a hug on the air. Show me some
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard another one of Erin's picks, The Counting Crows' Mr. Jones, from their August and Everything After album in 1993. Would you like to support living artists and freeform internet community radio? Well, you can. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate or go to the website RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and tool around there. See who you like. See what resonates with you. Donate as little as a dollar helps, trust me, and support living artists. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we're going to close with the last of Erin's song picks. This one is from Oasis. It's Don't Look Back in Anger. It's the live version from the London Festival and their Time Flies album, which came out in 2010. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo! Time.